Welcome to the Health Edge. I am Dr. Mark Pettis, coming to you from beautiful Berkshire Hills of Western Massachusetts. I hope everyone's having a, a great summer season, and it's nice to be with you. We've been on a little bit of a hiatus, uh, John and I, I. I had surgery a few months ago and had a very uneventful recovery, and I'm doing great. And I know John's been doing a fair amount of traveling. And and so uh, I wanted to just uh, share with everyone an update that I like to do periodically that captures what I would consider to be some of the top most powerful and accessible lifestyle interventions that can radically change one's health trajectory. And the science is always evolving and and I love it and and really appreciate how um, amazing our appreciation has become with respect to how powerful we are and our ability to heal and to repair and to rejuvenate is very much built into our human biology. And yet our models of care historically and have really disempowered people uh, to some extent unintentionally. Um, and, and I think as we return the power to the people and um, adapt models of care that take full advantage of the best that our modern systems give us, particularly with respect to acute care, trauma, emergency care, with a model of care that focuses much more on lifestyle, holistic models that leverage what we know to be an integrated system that um, very much uh, today, I think, is becoming more apparent. And, and even though ancient traditions have long observed the, the power of holistic models of, of care and, and being, a connection to earth, connection to others, the power of love, this, this inner deep strength that often lies dormant within us uh, that can be activated and brought to life is is hardly a new or novel story, but the the modern science is definitely beginning to at least create a more mechanistic understanding for how some of these dots are connected. And it's a story of empowerment. And so I uh, am pleased to just share a little bit of that with you today. I've got a few slides that I'll share with you. I will uh, upload these slides to my website, thehealthedgepodcast.com. There's a lot of information on that site, uh, some reference articles, some PowerPoint presentations, and um, I will also, uh, I link all of our podcast to our YouTube channel as well. Uh, I am not really into social media. That's uh, very un-American when you're trying to promote a podcast or get information out to people. Um, I just, you know, it's been a personal choice and one that serves me really quite well. So the extent to which our Health Edge family has grown tremendously 
is largely due to word of mouth or John and I getting out there in more public forums and, and just sharing a little bit about the work that we do. So uh, the greatest agency we have is you. And so um, if, if this is information that you think is helpful and might be of interest to those that you love and care about, or perhaps of interest to those that you serve and the and the work that you do. I know we have many healthcare professionals that listen to the Health Edge. Then please uh, run with it. Uh, the other thing that I would say is a lot of what I like to bring to this public forum is my translation of what's going on out there. It the the science is evolving so quickly that it can be hard and almost impossible through most traditional sources, you know, government agencies, academic institutions. These are not nimble institutions. And I think we've all seen the extent to which um, conflicts of interest and bias uh, can, can weigh heavily on the quality and content of information that ultimately reaches you. So I, I try to cut through a lot of that with varying degrees of efficacy, I, I realize. Um, my thoughts and views on many aspects of health have evolved and changed dramatically over the last uh, 20 plus years. And I think people who know me well uh, are often um, intrigued by how, to what extent my views have evolved. And so uh, that's the nature of science and that's the nature of our lives, to learn from the feedback we get to adapt what may be a pattern that may not be serving us well with a pattern that can serve us better. And uh, so that's just a little bit about, about where I'm coming from. I, For those of you who may not know much about my background, uh, my clinical training is in nephrology. I, I practiced uh, nephrology for many years, academic um, teaching institutions, residents, and nephrologists, you know, typically take care of people with kidney failure, very uh, advanced uh, disease, and sometimes requiring dialysis, transplant, hypertension. So many people whose lives I partnered with were confronting very complex issues and finding themselves at times in complete biopsychosocial, spiritual freefall. And so I you learn a lot when you have a willingness to enter the free fall with other fellow brothers and sisters, as I've done through the years and across the life continuum. And so uh, for me, it's been a very humbling experience. And as I came to realize that much of what I was seeing as a cause of suffering in so many was in fact preventable. And that, that set me on a very different trajectory. So um, as I like to say, I'm a born-again clinician and uh, very passionate about, about the work that I do. And so uh, let me just uh, get my screen up here and we'll share um, some of this content with you. We, uh, we have lots of hummingbirds in our, in our yard and um, love just the animals in general, and it's a it's a very active, vibrant ecosystem, especially this time of year. And uh, 
it it's almost you know it's spiritual when you're sitting and just reflecting and you see this a, a beautiful creature like this um uh, just coming into your consciousness and so these are the powers of 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 the environments that we are very much a part of and uh as we all know are quite health promoting as i shared um, some of you may have heard this before if you if you've followed me for many years but yeah, I was pretty academic and and still am um, former associate dean of medical education at uh, University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. Uh, have um, associate uh, director roles in residency training programs, medical student rotations, and have really committed most of my professional life to uh, training development of young clinicians and. It was really over 20 years ago that um, I found myself craving the red pill. And it was a turning point for me, just as it was for Neo uh, in the matrix. And it set me on a path of acquiring greater knowledge in nutrition, greater knowledge in environmental science and, and toxicology, huge issues that still get limited attention and in advanced medical training, learning more about neuroscience, and really a lot of the journey of self-care, and certainly the journey for me, both personally and professionally, has required that I unlearn many of the things that I thought were true. And this is going to be a theme throughout some of the content that I share with you. I do an exercise with uh, folks in the community when I'm talking or or residents uh, that I'm working with. And if you take your index finger and you point it up toward the ceiling or the sky and you make a clockwise circle, nice clockwise circle, keep it moving clockwise and do nothing other than lower your hand to the level of your heart. And when you look at your hand and finger, what direction is it moving in? Well, you'll find it's moving counterclockwise. So somewhere from here to here, there was a complete shift in the direction with which your hand and finger are turning. And I like to use this as an example of a, uh, a perspective observing uh uh, something that would lead to the conclusion that your finger is moving clockwise and nobody could convince you otherwise of that conclusion. And without doing anything other than changing the perspective with which we examine that same set of conditions, you can arrive the exact opposite conclusion. So one of the points that I'll make in terms of self-care and the science of self-care is that your beliefs, your perceptions really ultimately are what are going to drive your behaviors. And um, as it turns out, much of what we believe to be true is, is not necessarily so. And so your beliefs become the blueprint of your life. And the reality that, as quantum physics would suggest, you are actually creating, co-creating. Uh, and, and so the extent to which many of the perceptions that you hold with absolute truth, that may turn out to be much more subjective, fragile, arbitrary, and infinitely malleable states is very much worth calling into question, particularly if you're struggling with a health issue or a traumatic 
events in your life. Um, ultimately, this is about how we interpret and respond to those observations. And um, uh, ours is a future of many possibilities. And so really challenging, uh, you know, the, the blue pill that many of us have been handed, we get a lot of programming and much of it is well-intentioned, but it turns out just not to be true. And so those beliefs will become the basis upon which you think, you feel, and ultimately you behave. And we know that most of what influences longevity and quality of life, or what we would call health span, can be traced to our behaviors, our lifestyle. So let's look at this in a little more detail. It was now over 40 years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that Dr. James Fries, the late James Fries at, at Stanford, challenged this notion that the relationship between aging and quality of life, which for most of us inevitably goes downhill, is one that very much can be modified uh, in that we have this opportunity to realize as we get older, a very good quality of life. And it is in this domain of opportunity that the application of self-care uh, can be so powerful. So anyone who believes that they are on a trajectory over which they have little control, over which their genetic legacy from mom and dad has etched in stone where they are now at and heading, uh, should reconsider those belief systems because if everything you think and ultimately feel and do is a consequence of that really disempowering set of beliefs, no longer supported by the current science, then you are likely to realize an outcome that will be consistent with those beliefs. And so we know that we can break the fall at any time. And this is where an integrative health approach what some would call a lifestyle medicine approach, a functional, it gets a little confusing with the terminology out there. What most of these models share in common is a migration away from this disease model, more toward a preventive holistic systems biology model. And I'm going to give you what I believe to be some great um, translation of the science around where these opportunities are most accessible for us. And so this is largely what I've done in, in population health work that I've done in Western Massachusetts for Berkshire Health Systems, uh, which is where until recently I was employed. And so the emerging science would suggest that really lifestyle and environment, how you eat, how you move, how you sleep, how you interpret and respond to stress in your life, how effectively you manage the exposure of environmental toxins in your life, how connected you are to others who love and care about you, how much meaning and purpose you cultivate in your work, love, and play, how much time you spend outdoors, how educated you are, what socioeconomic stratum you might be a part of, 
uh, all of these aspects of our environment very much are now known to drive most of what we experience in our lives uh, with respect to longevity and health span or quality of life. And we know that it is these factors that act on our genetics. So our genetics play an important role, but they're not playing the dominant role that we once thought was the case. As it turns out, our genes, though they are fixed, and there's nothing we can do over what our parents endowed us with, it is the epigenetics, it is the regulation, the software that regulates the DNA hardware that ultimately lifestyle and environment interacts so that the expression of those genes, how those genes ultimately are translated in the book of life we are writing is what this relationship is all about. It is a much more interactive, dynamic, malleable relationship. And we've come to appreciate that while we look in the mirror and see a human being staring back at us, that we really are comprised of many tiny little microorganisms, trillions of them, far more than the number of human cells that we have, lots more DNA from microbes than human DNA. If you were to put it on a, you know, on a, on a balance. And so these organisms, this ecosystem that is very much a part of the human ecosystem, this composite, which is integrated with the ecosystem of nature and and that which is around us is much more nuanced and complex. And as it turns out, what we eat and how we move and how we sleep and how we interpret and respond to stress and, and how much loneliness or isolation we have versus social connection and uh, you know, how bored to death we are at work versus how much we are thriving, how traumatic a relationship might feel as compared with how loving and compassionate a relationship might feel will also alter the diversity of this ecosystem. So there's this dynamic interplay between our lifestyle and the environments within which we navigate our lives the extent to which our book of life is expressed, all of which is in some way being influenced by an ecosystem that in modern life is under perpetual assault. Uh, And we'll look at that in a moment. Now, while our lives emerge at this really interesting and complex intersection, perhaps most importantly, and this this gets into a uh, bit of a rabbit hole, at least a rabbit hole from a material scientific reductionist perspective. I was raised on a reductionist scientific materialism model, and it and it seemed really beautiful, and it was elegant and complex. It explained a lot of things in the material world, but it fell far short of fully explaining my own experience of life and that which I was experiencing in a healing relationship with others as a physician, as a father, as a uh, a husband, as a community um, service volunteer. And it's in this domain that one might call the spiritual, transcending um, that which is material, 
uh, meaning, purpose. Um, this for some may have religious uh, connotation, but um, um, all that is spiritual is, is surely not religious. Um, and one might say there's a lot uh, in religion that doesn't feel spiritual. And uh, that's that's a rabbit hole I won't spend too much time in right now. But the essence of this from a scientific perspective is this is really the domain of the non-material. This is what some would call quantum physics, quantum biophysics. Um, and this is where your thoughts have, have elegant form and from an electromagnetic, from a uh, photonic light. Um, as Tesla said, you know, to, to really understand reality, you need to be thinking in terms of vibration, frequency, energy. This is the domain of the non-material. And in 2023, uh, no one has really yet fully developed a unified way of combining these domains because they are very, very different. And in the realm of the of consciousness, a school of thought would be that consciousness really is the basis of everything. Um, God is consciousness. Love is as the ultimate expression of that, of that, of that consciousness, and everything in the material world comes from that. I was taught in medical school and residency, and this is the teaching today that without the material, there can be no consciousness. Um, Another way of thinking about this, which is the way that I now embrace, is that without consciousness, there can be no material. And it is in this domain that our beliefs, noticing our patterns of thinking, the emotions that we're generating, we're on the spectrum of positive, negative, love, hatred, uh, is that needle pointing? Because that's more than a nebulous aspect of life. It is quantified in the electromagnetic energetic domain. And that quantification, those patterns ultimately are what drive what we see in the material world. And there's an, a wealth of mind-body science that supports that. Uh, nobody would deny the placebo effect. The sheer belief that something you're about to put in your mouth can help you makes more likely that you will realize a biology of benefit. Uh, even though there's no mechanism in the actual pill that you're taking that would explain that. That is this realm of consciousness. And again, all ancient traditions, spiritual, theologic, philosophical, um, esoteric, uh, the mystical traditions all just embraced that and understood that. And we seem to, as Graham Hancock would say, uh, you know, we're a species with amnesia. We seem to have forgotten that that is very much the essence of who we are. And I, and I think that's really important as one challenges their belief systems uh, in an effort to, to create a different trajectory of life. And uh, that is very much the possibility within all of us. Um, so it's unequivocally true in 2023 that we do not have to be prisoners of our DNA. And epigenetics would suggest that while this book of life is what we came into the world with, the person 
who emerges, the persona, the longevity, the quality of life is likely to be a direct output from the relationship between the quality of the environment that person is in, um, eating, moving, were they traumatized as a child? Are they traumatized as an adult? Are they in an environment that's not loving and supportive? Are they struggling to survive another day economically? Are they food insecure? You know, these are these are profound conditions that will take one's biology and create an entirely different trajectory of life than an environment that's more loving, supportive, full of light, um, full of movement, full of plant-based foods. Um, same book of life, entirely different output from that. This is really what the epigenetic science is revealing to us. And, and I think it can be said, this is still theoretical, but it's a theory that I very much embrace. And I think there's, there's some really good science that's consistent with it, is that one of the reasons that we've become so sick and that that relationship between age and quality of life, that slippery slope that James Fries described in 1980 in the New England Journal of Medicine um, has really accelerated. And one reason for that is that our book of life that we inherited from our parents and the, gener the thousands of generations that preceded them has not changed that much at all. We, we have good genetic um, data to suggest that our book of life really from many generations back has not changed in a significant way. What has changed is the environments that we are all, all now navigating. Modern environments that give us incredible convenience, but modern envi environments that also challenge us because there are now aspects of this environment that aren't as compatible with the book of life that has been deeply etched over many generations, over millennia. Some would call this gene environment mismatch. And the greater that mismatch, the greater the likelihood of disrupted health and disease risk. Now, where a lot of the, the aging and longevity research is moving, is an understanding that when you look at what we would consider age-related diseases, Alzheimer's, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, um, you know, the I, once I would have said obesity, but now that, you know, what was an adult disease has become a disease of, of young children, same with diabetes and pre-diabetes, autoimmunity, cancer, these all go up, osteoarthritis and osteoporosis all go up with aging. And despite what would have been remarkable attempts to offset these changes uh, through the pharmaceutical industry, we continue to see an explosion of prevalence in all chronic complex diseases. Our model of care has not done anything, it would appear, to mitigate that trajectory. Public health measures have made a huge difference and probably more than any uh, efforts to more than cut fit by more than 50% smoking rates have probably done more to enhance current 
epidemiologic statistics than most of what the pharma pharmaceutical industry would otherwise likely take credit for. These are the fault lines, if you will, or sort of consensus around where as we get older, all these diseases end up emerging from. You know, with each passing week and month, our book of life uh, will get a, a mutation or two from the environments that we're in and the various triggers that are out there. Our telomeres, the ends of our book of life, chromosomes get shorter. The, the One of the most important organelles in every cell in our body, mitochondria, central to energy production, central to communicating the what we call the redox oxidation potential in the cell, a, uh, a transformer of light energy into ATP, uh, what was once felt to be a microbe that that end up ended up becoming part of the human composite biology falters tremendously uh, when one looks at it in the context of all age-related diseases. Our proteins lose their configuration, which, which means they lose their efficacy. And so insulin won't work as well. We might call that insulin resistance. Um, our uh, uh, immune inflammatory mediators not working as well. Um, we tend to lose our stem cells as we get older. Stem cells are, are like new uh, materials that can turn into any cell in the body. They're, they're uh, cells that are um, amenable uh, to become uh, a liver cell or a kidney cell or a heart cell or a muscle cell. And we lose uh, this new regenerative capacity as we get older. Inflammation, many of you are aware of, is, is really a loss of uh, balance in what is a necessary need to mount a response to a potential threat, you know, like COVID or um, uh, a particular uh, toxin uh, versus a response that is on most of the time, uh, losing its way. What we would what we would say losing tolerance. Uh, one loses their ability to be exposed to something uh, that historically would not have been harmful, but in in a contemporary context becomes a real threat. Examples of, of that might be nuts, might be uh, gluten, might be, um, uh, you know, a bee toxin. Uh, and so we see in 2023 a emergence of excessive, over-the-top inflammatory responses that in many instances are life-threatening. Our cells lose their ability to communicate. We all know in our own lives uh, how breakdown of communication gets quite disruptive, whether it's in a relationship or in our workplace. Uh, well, you look at the extent to which you've got 30 plus trillion cells in your body, all with varying sort of specialties that need to be able to communicate with each other. And we know that those systems get lost. And and then the last thing, and this is this is actually an abbreviated list, which will continue to grow. But these are the top 
the suspects, if you will, uh, is this issue of cellular senescence, the um, natural aging of cells that ordinarily would say, you know what, I'm no longer able to support this organism. I'm going to take myself out. Uh, it's called apoptosis. It's cell suicide, if you will. And then a, a stem cell becomes a new cell and uh, one regenerates uh, without harm. And and what we see now is that many uh, senescent cells are hanging around internally too long, and that becomes an inflammatory state. It becomes a cancer-promoting state. Now, central to sort of human biology, as I understand it, is that when you look at the aging science, and if you look at people who age extraordinarily well, um, people that live in blue zones, um, you know, Icarus, Greek island, uh, Sardinia, off the coast of Italy, the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica, you know, as some examples. Um, what you see is that these resiliency systems, these fault lines are not as significantly impacted as what you would see in someone of similar age living in a different sort of socio-cultural environmental context. And one of the differences that's quite apparent is that their natural rejuvenatory systems that uh, prevent genomic instability, that prevent telomere shortening, that prevent disrupted mitochondria are functioning in a normal adaptive way. Um, so this gene environment mismatch for many interferes with the internal rejuvenating restorative systems from being fully activated. And if that is the case, while you have more environmental threats challenging those systems, you can begin to see how one's health will break down um, often at very, very young ages. So uh, there's a, a, an interesting sort of school of thought that you know, our Western models are so highly specialized. Um, and, and when I finished training you know, 40 years ago, a neurologist was a neurologist. Now we have neurologists that, does, that just focus on seizures. They're seizure specialists. Some may be more Alzheimer specialty related. You see cardiologists that focus specifically on the electricity of the heart or on putting stents in a coronary vessel. Things have become so, the scientific reductionist materialistic model, worthy though it is at many levels, uh, has created this uh, complex ecosystem of highly compartmentalized specialties, uh, each dealing with their own advanced uh, uh, end organ complication, none of which talk to each other, and most of which don't really focus more on the preventive aspect. Where did these you know, end organ diseases come from? And if instead of focusing on Alzheimer's, we focused on inflammation, mitochondria, uh, the, the you know the gut microbiome, the 
uh, ability of insulin to work better, less insulin resistance, the greater the likelihood that we would reduce someone's risk of Alzheimer's, of cancer, of diabetes, of heart disease. So when one begins to look at aging as a risk for all chronic complex diseases, when one begins to understand what from a systems biology perspective is breaking down and begins to focus on those aspects of the metabolic landscape, might there be a greater likelihood that we'll see much greater success in the management, prevention, and ultimately treatment of these end organ diseases, many of which today continue to be uh, very resistant to, to significant breakthroughs in treatment. Uh, and so this is a, just a different way of thinking about um, from a self-care perspective. I want to know, you know, is what is on the end of my fork or on my plate likely to turn up inflammation or turn it down? Is it likely to um, diversify my gut biome or uh, obliterate it? Uh, is it likely to take my fight flight response and calm it down or is it likely to provoke it? Uh, and so this is where lifestyle and the empowerment of self-care can allow one to begin to connect lifestyle choices and environment with drivers of aging and longevity that can very powerfully mitigate those drivers and that, I believe, in 2023 is the greatest opportunity we have to enhance our longevity, to enhance our health span. And the medical community, you know, as it currently exists, is fine when you have an emergency, when you have an acute problem, uh, you know, you're dealing with trauma. Um, and no matter what treatment you may be getting in that context, important as it is, these principles should be applied 100% of the time and everyone, no adult left behind. So here are some of my, that was a long-winded um, runway to just offering you some, what I consider to be basic uh, blocking and tackling. Nutritionally, I would say one of the great targets for most of us is the opportunity to reduce these, what I would call carbohydrate-dense foods. These are foods made largely from grains, which are carbohydrate dense. All grains, uh, even whole grains, are pretty carbohydrate dense. And if you're wearing a continuous glucose monitor and you eat whole wheat bread, you'll be surprised at how high your sugar is. So whole grain is better than processed. But if one is looking to radically reduce their carbohydrate dense exposure, it would involve elimination of most grains, uh, perhaps all grains. And if someone is not so inclined for that, you know, that's fine. Uh, you, you might focus on gluten containing grains. You might focus just on wheat. Um, and it won't take long for you to see how your biology responds to that change in your lifestyle and environment. And if that's a significant difference that you know, well, that, that gives you some pretty good feedback as to how important that is to you individually. So these are major, these food groups are major uh, contributors to all chronic complex disease. Um, 
this is a big opportunity and um, uh, whether you're low carb paleo or low carb ketogenic, more of an extreme or just, you know, maybe you're vegetarian or vegan. The key here is to try to, I'm not trying to talk people into eating in a way that maybe philosophically or ethically they're not comfortable doing. What I am offering is some research that can allow one to look within those values and what and their preferences and say, hmm, maybe this choice will produce or serve me better uh, than uh, the choice that I would have gone to historically. And we know that uh, this is research from Ian Spreadbury, um, who last I knew was at McGill in Montreal. When you look at these carbohydrate-dense foods and you look at the ways in which our mouth and gut or colon ecosystem process it, what the research is showing that across the board, these are foods that will promote inflammation, insulin resistance, they'll alter your mitochondria, they can provoke a stress response. These are drivers of aging. These are disruptors of longevity. They are disruptors of your health span, and they will accelerate your disease risk. And if you have genes that you inherited from mom and dad that might have put you at more risk for Alzheimer's or diabetes, then these are the kinds of interactions that will make more likely that your genes will express themselves as they did for your parents. Um, what we inherit from our parents is more than just genes that code for protein. We inherit the social and environmental conditions within which they, they live. We often inherit their belief systems. We often in, inherit trauma and conflict. And so, um, you know, there are things we can do to change the extent to which that inheritance affects us. In much the same way that if you look at plant-based carbohydrates, these are all carbohydrates. No, you know, you wouldn't be able to distinguish the macronutrient, um, but the quality of the macronutrient is such that the same ecosystem of organisms produces a much more protective metabolic output. Plant-based carbs versus more carbohydrate process um, uh, carbs produce very different metabolic outputs. Uh, and this is why uh, plant-based, one of the many reasons why plant-based foods are so, so important. Now, I, many of you have heard me say this a lot, and, and for some, this is still a source of great cognitive dissonance. Again, if uh, please don't believe a word that I say. Uh, I'm simply offering a, a, a translation. And uh, you may find that this translation does not work well for you. But in my experience, for most, people need to be more comfortable reintroducing some foods that historically they have been programmed to fear, like eggs, like butter, like fats from healthy meat sources, um, coconut oil, fatty fish, olive oil, avocados, nuts, um, you know, grass-fed sources of butter. These are really important. Uh, they don't have that glycemic effect. Um, they are fats that are very resistant to oxidation. They're more resilient. These are fats that will take a hit from your environment, hits coming from electromagnetic radiation, hits coming from conflict, hits coming from the standard American diet, hits coming from what might be some of the pharmaceuticals that you've been prescribed. 
these fats will comprise your cell membranes, your mitochondrial membranes, and they are much more resistant to inflammation and oxidative stress. And for me, that is a winner across the board. Uh, and they're also very satiating. You will very much bring equilibrium to your um, sugar insulin balance. And again, uh, the, the biome, not to belabor this, but, but plant-based foods and these fermentable uh, fibers are just essential as one focuses on the, the diversification of their ecosystem. And this can include eating cleaner sources of food, um, um, many of which have antibiotic residues and um, processed meats from agricultural, you know, food farms, poultry and, and pork and beef can have high antibiotic levels from what the animals were, were given. And so you will assume that. And so there are many things one can do to minimize the extent to which external foods and uh, toxins are affecting the diversity of your biome. And again, there are just so many nutrient dense um, these foods not only have are great sources of fiber for for biome fermentation, uh, but they are so packed with these phytonutrients, these non-vitamin and mineral nutrients that are known to have many epigenetic effects. Many of the effects that one sees uh, in terms of the drivers of aging, inflammation, um, alteration of of the biome. Um, genetic mutation, gene expression, mitochondrial function are all made more resilient uh, and, and effective uh, when you look at how these phytonutrients impact um, human health. These are all huge topics, uh, but just very quickly, um, and I have lots of specific topics on this that you can go back on the health edge and, and hear more, uh, and I'll be revisiting a lot of these topics in the very near future. But another huge quality of life, lifestyle opportunity is examining to what extent is your biologic rhythm in sync with the diurnal rhythm of sun rising and sun setting. Um, all of your biology, as it turns out, is on a timer. Nobel Prize was awarded to that uh, some five plus years ago um, in medicine. We know that not having enough time outdoors, some types of non-native lighting, uh, lighting that comes from our, um, our tech technology, lighting that comes from uh, fluorescent bulbs, often is much poorer quality lighting, uh, and meal timing. These are all um, important current research edges that are suggesting huge opportunity from a human health perspective. So we know we know that many of us in modern life have lost that circadian rhythm. We might experience that as disrupted sleep. We might experience that as depression, as inflammation, chronic pain, diabetes, obesity. Again, you see the ways in which multiple environmental factors converge on the same metabolic fault lines that if the gene environment mismatch is not adequately addressed, one's experience of life will be that of feeling poorly, 
having diseases diagnosed, getting more um, prescriptions written for them, uh, being told it's largely genetic and uh, there's not much you can do about it. So you, you know, you continue to have reinforced belief systems that are totally disrupting your biology, et cetera, et cetera. One has to break those cycles, which can take some work uh, and some time and some research. But at the end of the day, it's what we're programmed for. We're really returning to that which generations ago we would have just done without ever even thinking about it. Um, so uh, consistent day, night uh, times of getting up and then going to bed. Morning sunlight exposure is so important. Uh, in a perfect world, we would all watch the sunrise every day. And in a really perfect world, we would do that while standing barefooted somewhere on land, uh, just grounding, grounding, watching that sun come up. You're not going to get a sunburn. You're not going to get melanoma. Um, I'm talking about strategic exposure of what could be the most important environmental therapeutic in input that we have. And that is the information from the spectrum of light from the sunlight. It, Without question, too much sunlight is dangerous. It'll accelerate your aging of your skin. It will increase your skin cancer risk. I'm not denying that. I'm talking about strategic exposures that allow you to resynchronize um, and without risk of sunburning and the consequences of sunburning. Really, that is an endpoint that one wants to avoid at all costs. Early morning, later afternoon, early evening exposure without sunglasses for, for 10 minutes uh, with as much skin exposed as possible is just a very powerful intervention. Using blue blocker glasses and blue blocker um, uh, filters in your technology is very important. After sunset, uh, it's good to turn those blue blockers on uh, or to be using blue blocker glasses. This is, this is not um, some sort of you know, new wave fluff. This is hardcore uh, circadian science. Uh, this is quantum physics. Uh, this is light biology. And, and we need to know that sunlight is our friend. Nature is our friend. Grounding to the electromagnetic um, frequencies of, of this planet is our friend. Uh, and so uh, one might consider taking a, a compact fluorescent light and switching it out to a, a warm LED or a warm halogen, more energy efficient lights that have a color spectrum that is more consistent with sunlight. Um, and toward the end of the day in your bedroom, in your family room, really having a warmer, softer light and eliminating some of that blue light. Blue light is the light that begins the day that we are we are wired to start the day with blue light exposure if you're getting blue light toxicity at 11 p.m. your brain thinks that it is 7 a.m. so you're going to get ready to go to bed at a time when your cortisol is on the ceiling when it should be on the floor your melatonin is on the floor when it should be on the ceiling and all of these restorative software programs that get turned on at night are not going to be activated. That activation code 
will not be accessible because the information from that frequency of blue light, 460 nanometers, uh, we have evolved as a signal. This is this is photobiomodulation. This is powerful stuff. Um, and short intervals of time where one uh, applies some of these interventions can yield great results. Uh, you know, mindfulness practice, and, and you're all aware of the importance of the breath, the pause, um, activating this parasympathetic nervous system, the antidote to the fight flight. Um, uh, and the research is, is just very, very deep in terms of reducing inflammation, enhancing mitochondrial function, altering that fight flight response. But this is an opportunity. I think I, I see these practices, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, whether it's Qigong, Tai Chi, Reiki, um, Ayurveda, traditional Chinese medicine, acupuncture, all understand the energetic scaffolding of that which is material. And if one can begin to even find a minute to be calm uh, and then build from that, we, we don't have much time where we're still. It is in those moments of stillness that we can begin to become witness to what our thoughts are as they pass through. Oh, gee, that's, is that what I'm thinking about right now? You know, that conflict from yesterday or that that project that I have to, you know, you start to become a witness, not just of, of, of your beliefs, of your thoughts, but, but what is creating for you internally. And the more I began to slow that down, the more I really began to, to see that, um, many of the beliefs and thoughts that I held to be true turned out not to be true at all. And, and I could begin to recreate, deconstruct and reconstruct very new patterns and noticing the biologic output from that, either through my pulse or my heart rate variability or my brain waves, whatever you might be measuring. Uh, and so this is literally acting, in my view, on the quantum level, much of which is, you know, the brain in this, in this model is not the source. It is the instrument through which this quantum, these quantum fields are played. Um, the brain isn't the source of consciousness. Consciousness is the source of the brain. That is a that is an entirely different paradigm. And one can then begin to appreciate changes in the brain are a reflection of changes in those morphogenetic or quantum fields. Ultimately, that's what is translated materialistically that we might measure as a blood pressure or a blood sugar or our score on our PHQ-9 depression screening test. Uh, you know, we have material ways of measuring what ultimately uh, is taking place at the interface of the energetic with the material that's an that's an exciting frontier to be exploring uh, and again this goes back to circadian rhythms and i'll finish i know this has been a bit long-winded um uh, i know it's not apparent that i love this stuff 
Uh, but again, being outdoors, playing outdoors, remembering where we've come from, you know, getting dirty, gardening, uh, you know, it, these are powerful, powerful, I hate to call them interventions. They're, they're experiences of life that we are very much designed for. Uh, and, and then the wellness science that is translated is more than powerful. We, we all know that the importance of social connection and health um, you know, it, may, it may take another generation or two before we understand the full impact of our response to the pandemic um, and the extent to which the fear and the social isolation, uh, particularly in our youth, um, outside of just some of the educational lapses from, from remote learning that have been widely studied and reported on uh, but the epigenetics of the environment we've all been navigating has not been very health promoting. Uh, that, that could be the understatement of the century. Uh, and so I think it's really important to understand that these epigenetic changes are powerful. We have the ability to, to reprogram them. Uh, but there are a lot of kids and certainly many adults that are going to be struggling with perhaps learning with um PTSD-like symptoms with maybe more colds and um, maybe more sensitivity to foods. And so I think it's really important that we, we look at how lifestyle and that, that gene environment matching is ultimately what allows us to create more resilience in response to prior uh, affronts and the affronts that are to come, which, which we see in our lives every day. And social connection, you know, we are at a quantum level where, you know, this, this at a quantum level, Mark Bettis doesn't really exist. I, I, I come from this source that we all come from. Um, I, uh, in my worldview, I incarnated in this avatar known as Mark Pettis. Uh, it, there's a, uh, a, a material complex ecosystem that comprises the avatar that is known as Mark Pettis. And it is the um, illusion that I am separate from my brothers and sisters. It's an illusion that I'm separate from the plant and animal world. It's an illusion that skin color or socioeconomic class or gender preference is, um, uh, you know, makes you and I entirely different people. Yes, those are differences in our lives. And, and, but fundamentally, when you keep going upstream to the ultimate source of who you are, no matter how you would characterize that in this avatar that you are, uh, you you see nothing but commonality. And so, um, you know, we need to love each other. And uh, maybe 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 there are relationships in, in your life. I've had them in my life that are really important. But for whatever reason, um, conflict, uh, hurt, prior transgression may have impacted how that how that affected me and and I can I could perhaps say that ah that's just I hate that person or that person's no good and and if I'm ruminating on that that's really not serving myself very well from a health perspective inflammation fight flight mitochondrial dysfunction more DNA mutation 
less biome diversity, more proteostasis, fewer stem cells, my aging will be accelerated and I'm going to confront things that I'm going to blame on my genetics that have less to do with that and more to do with the reality that I have actually co-created. That's a very different proposition and it's not an easy one because I think it does force us to look more carefully at how we view the world and um, uh, where, where we're often not the victims that we may perceive ourselves to be. We're not the, ge the genetic predetermined um, you know, people going through this life, hoping that things don't happen. Uh, uh, th that's, that's not the true nature of who we are. And so, you know, these, these connections become very important. Motion is the lotion. We, we were born to move. Uh, and it's certainly the Holy Grail. I think just walking as much as you can in any given day is a good goal for anyone. If you do that already, then I would be focusing more on very short exposures of resistance. I would be working on uh, creating a bit more lean body mass, 15, 20 minutes, couple times a week of my large muscle groups. Um, and then 15 minutes, couple times a week, getting my heart rate and breathing up, just doing something that will create more rapid heart rate, more air moving in and out of my lungs, even if it's for five or 10 minutes and then bring that down. It, it doesn't take as much to realize the health benefits as one might think. Uh, and, you know, as I've said, love and laughter really is good medicine. These should not be in the domain of the, you know, the alternative, the fluff, the soft science. Uh, there's nothing soft about um, hatred. There's nothing soft about the health effects of trauma. There's nothing soft about uh, going through life, having had limited experience of love and laughter. Um, there's nothing soft about going through life taking yourself so seriously that you can never ultimately live up to the expectation, this illusory expectation that you have placed upon yourself. And so I do think that, and again, this is the realm of the quantum. This is quantum biophysics. Um, this is, this is uh, these are um, manifestations of being that are associated with gamma wave activity in the brain synchronization of the left and right brain hemisphere, probably a very rare state for most humans in modern life that is associated with expansion of consciousness, love, compassion, creative thinking, mental health resilience, less inflammation, better mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this, uh, just in terms of toxins, you know, again, and I, I could spend a full day talking about just detoxification. And again, I'm going to come back to these topics, uh, but just to lay this uh, rather lengthy foundation down for you. One of the easiest things I think one can do is to just in, in the growing season, understand which produce of those that you like have the highest pesticide residues uh, and which of those have the lowest. And um, the, you know, the Dirty Dozen by the Environmental Working Group uh, is published each year. Uh, if when I'm able, 
uh, if I'm going to get strawberries or apples uh, in season, I will lean toward organic um, for me. And, and it's what I recommend. My kids are grown now, but my son lives with us and it's what we want for him as well. Uh, I, I understand not everyone can afford that. So uh, because there can be a difference in accessibility to those foods and price of those foods. Um, um, in much the same way, there are uh, many plants and, and fruits and vegetables that do not require pesticides, herbicides, are not genetically modified that, um, you know, sweet corn is certainly GMO. Uh, and, and, you know, I would add that as a consideration because of glyphosate. But for the most part, um, one does not, uh, these uh, do not require organic sources uh, because they do tend to have lower uh, residues. And so in the example of, of typical pesticides and herbicides. Um, and so um, really what we're beginning to see uh, from research, and this is exciting research that I've touched on in some recent recordings, is in the aging and longevity research, we can actually reprogram ourselves epigenetically. We can look at these what we call methyl patterns on our DNA, which one can interpret from a saliva sample or a blood sample. Uh, and this research is still evolving, um, but we're beginning to get a sense that biologically, the environment will create a, kind of an aging um, biomarker. And, and this is one that's getting a lot of interest. And, and we know that many studies are now beginning to show that when you apply the some of the lifestyle suggestions that I've recommended here, that your biologic age as measured through these methylation epigenetic patterns, uh, as measured through inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein, as measured through these um, uh, age molecules, these advanced glycosylated um, molecules uh, like hemoglobin A1C, you know, we there are many things that that are readily accessible that one can begin to look at um, as a measure of biologic age in contrast to chronologic age. And most of us hope to be biologically younger than our chronologic ages. We can all think of examples where that's not the case. Um, and, and so, um, hopefully this foundation will give you a sense of, um, opportunity. And, uh, as I said, uh, I'll be diving more into some of these specific domains, uh, with a, an emphasis on lifestyle. This will really be kind of a lifestyle medicine 101. Um, and, um, uh, whether you're, uh, just a motivated steward of self-care or whether you're, a healthcare caregiver and are looking for um, kind of, you know, an accessible um, science-based um, overview of things that you can begin to apply in your own life and with those that you serve. Hopefully over the next several months, I can provide you with that playbook. And so I thank you uh, for your time and attention and um, uh, check us out on YouTube, um, uh, my website, uh, healthedgepodcast.com. Um, share this with your friends if, if you find it helpful and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Stay well and be well.